Okay, so good evening. The end of our towards the end of our second full day of practice. So I just wondered, how are you doing? <coughs> maybe you can give me a thumbs up, a thumbs down, and mm, not too bad. A couple of thumbs up, some wobbly. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not seeing too many thumbs down. Maybe some at times. So, whatever you're experiencing right now, as we know, the invitation is to meet it with this kind curiosity. And over the course of the retreat so far, I've mostly been focusing on what we can think of as the wisdom aspect of the Buddhist teachings. So, developing that strong foundation of sati and samadhi, clear, to support our clear seeing, to know more fully what's happening in the body, in the heart, and the mind. Because it's this that allows transformative insights to arise. And mostly, in the mindfulness instructions, I've been emphasizing the non-reactive aspect of mindfulness as we are practicing this afternoon, just staying steady and present with whatever arises, whether that's experienced as pleasant, as unpleasant, or as neutral. Now just to be clear, the point of doing that is not to try to make ourselves into some kind of inert lump of stone. It's intended to help us be more aware so that we can have a skillful response to our experiences instead of just acting out of knee-jerk habit or old psychological patterns. So that's the general invitation. And for all of us at times in our lives, on retreat, maybe already on this retreat, there are times when what comes up is very challenging perhaps intense physical pain, intense emotional pain, maybe even anguish. And at those times, although we might do our best to meet what's happening without getting overwhelmed, the mindfulness and the wisdom aren't yet strong enough to meet that intensity of what we're facing. And so one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I appreciate more and more is that he offered us a whole variety of a whole variety of approaches and meditation methods. So there's another whole set of what we can think of as heart practices that are known as the four Brahma-Vihara. And I may have mentioned those in passing so far, but I know at least some of you are familiar with these four heart qualities of kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy, and of equanimity. And these can be developed through specific meditation techniques that we will be exploring later on in the retreat. But they provide us with a very powerful set of tools, of resources, to meet those more intense ups and downs of our lives. So it's these heart qualities that I'd like to just touch into tonight. So first, just a little bit of context of how about how the Brahma-Vihara work with our insight practice. So later on in the Buddhist tradition, as some of you know, that this whole path is sometimes framed in terms of a metaphor of the two wings to awakening. 
and those two wings are wisdom and compassion. And I use that metaphor a lot because I like its simplicity and how directly it conveys that we need both wings to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. So wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight, which is mostly what we've been focusing on so far. And compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet that suffering with kindness, and, whenever possible, to help it to release. Now, perhaps because we're in the insight tradition, the wisdom wing of the practice generally gets more emphasis, and not so much attention is paid to the compassion wing. So tonight I'd like to say a little more about the compassion wing, really in the service of helping us find balance between the two. So most of us, just by inclination or by training, we tend to have a bias towards one of these wings more than the other. So when we're looking at the long-term development of our practice, it can be helpful to occasionally do a, a sort of a practice review and just to check how is the balance overall between wisdom and compassion. And in my own practice, with hindsight, I can now recognize phases where one or other of these two wings got a bit too far ahead. And that gap between the two of them, it was uncomfortable, even painful, unsettling and discouraging, until I eventually recognized that I needed to strengthen the other wing in order to come back to balance. So because we're in the insight tradition, mostly I meet people whose wisdom wing has got too far ahead of the compassion wing. We put so much emphasis on seeing clearly. And at first, generally speaking, the insights that we see tend to be to recognize our own personal habit patterns, our deep-rooted childhood and family conditioning. You could say our neuroses, or in traditional terms, what are sometimes talked about as our defilements. And so all of those apparent shortcomings start to be revealed to us, sometimes in very vibrant, vivid detail. And it can be painful to suddenly start to shed light on all of those um, difficult aspects of our personality and our history. Hence the old joke that self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. So we can recognize, perhaps, times of distress when we're seeing too clearly but we don't have the compassion to support resilience. Then as those in insights deepen, we start to see more clearly into what are known as the three universal characteristics. I mentioned them briefly earlier today. So that's the understanding that everything is impermanent, a nature. Because of that impermanence, it's unreliable, it's unsatisfactory, it's dukkha. And there is no fixed, permanent, stable self to whom it's all happening. It's anatta. 
And as we touch into and deepen into these three characteristics, especially at first it can be unsettling, even painful, because these insights challenge us to let go of some of our very deeply held beliefs about who we are, how the world is. And so at these times we might again need to consciously cultivate the compassion wing for a while to develop a little more resilience of heart and mind so that we can navigate these more intense challenges with some degree of balance. So that's just a couple of ways that the wisdom wing can get ahead of the compassion wing. There are also times when the compassion wing can get ahead of the wisdom wing. So as we start to turn and look more closely and experience more directly the truth of Dukkha, one of those three universal characteristics that I just mentioned, at times we might start to feel overwhelmed by our own and other people's pain. We can start to open to the grief of the world which, thanks to modern technology, is pumped into our living rooms 24 hours a day if we choose to do that. And that global misery is on top of the dukkha that we're already experiencing in ourselves and in our families and in our communities. So it's not surprising if at times we find ourselves descending into despair. So at those times, we might need to reconnect with the wisdom wing and tune in to the two other universal characteristics to remember impermanence, change, and not-self. So when we can remember that everything is constantly changing and even the most intense dukkha comes to an end, and that none of this process is personal, then it becomes possible to taste moments of deep freedom, even in the midst of intense difficulty. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion, and learning how to balance them, is part of the art of this practice. So to look a little more closely now at compassion itself. As I said earlier, it's the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and if at all possible, to help it to release. So the Pali word is karuna, and it's usually translated as compassion. And in English, that's understood as sometimes as the heart that feels with, vibrates, in response to someone else's pain, or to our own pain. For most people, though, this is not the usual way we relate to dukkha, to suffering. For many of us, it's totally counterintuitive to turn towards, to move towards suffering instead of away from it. And some of us came to this path in the first place out of a perhaps somewhat unconscious desire to get rid of suffering. So when we're invited to get closer to it, we might think, well, hey, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought the point of spiritual practice was to get beyond suffering. Suffering hurts. Why would I want to go there? Well, one reason is that it's inevitable. 
this universal characteristic of dukkha that the Buddha pointed to, the first noble truth that the Buddha brings all of these teachings starts with that first noble truth. There is dukkha at times. There are times in life when pain and suffering are inescapable. So it's good to practice meeting our small difficulties now so that we can build that compassion muscle before we really need it. And so here on retreat we have that opportunity to be gradually expanding our capacity to be with what's uncomfortable. So this turning towards pain, I think one analogy is like when we're swimming in the sea and one of those big waves suddenly appears on the horizon. And our usual instinct might be to turn and try to run away or to swim away from it. But if we do that, we usually end up getting dumped, slammed into the sand. Generally, it's better to turn towards the wave and at the right moment dive through it just before it breaks. It might be turbulent for a few seconds, but usually we come out the other side in much better shape than if we've been just slammed into the seashore. I think it's clear from that metaphor, that image, that it takes courage to do this. It takes courage and it takes presence of mind, mindfulness, and it takes practice. So we're fortunate that, like with all of the Buddha's teachings, this is another quality that we can cultivate. And for me this was quite empowering because before I met these teachings I thought that people, they were just born kind and compassionate. And me, well I just wasn't. And so it was very inspiring and in fact freeing to realize that there were practices that I could actually do to train in the development of compassion. So compassion is specifically the second of the four Brahmavihara qualities. And the first one, which is usually presented as the foundation that all the others grow from, is kindness. The Pali word is metta, which I think most of you are familiar with, sometimes translated as loving kindness, or goodwill, or universal friendliness. So we start by cultivating this foundation of metta, of kindness, and then from that the other three can grow. From that kindness grows compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And metta, or goodwill, is kind of a, almost a generic form of friendliness. And when that baseline of metta turn specifically to what's painful, then it flowers naturally as compassion. So there's a close connection between metta and compassion. But compassion is specifically oriented to pain and the relief of pain. Sadly though, in mainstream society, I think compassion hasn't been highly valued. And if we look at the state of the world right now, it sometimes feels like we're in an epidemic of non-compassion. And I wonder if we're reaping the results of this undervaluing of compassion on a society-wide scale. 
again, our dominant mainstream society tends to orient to perfectionism and competitiveness and individualism. And as a result, many of us have that conditioning where we can, even the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign or even threatening. So I just want to normalize some of those challenges if you do find compassion difficult for you. And in my own practice, the first challenge I came up against was that I didn't know that compassion even existed. It just wasn't part of my inner repertoire, you could say. But I was fortunate that the very first 10-day insight retreat that I did in Thailand, the teachers put equal emphasis on wisdom and compassion in their teachings. So I sat a 10-day insight retreat with them and got a lot out of it. So I went back three months later to do another retreat with the same teachers. And in that second retreat, they had a whole new emphasis on compassion. And they talked about compassion over and over again. And on that second retreat, it was like a revelation. I felt like I'd been hit over the head with a sledgehammer and it was like, boing! I realized compassion was what had been missing for most of my life. It wasn't really part of my family. It wasn't in the communities I grew up in, the friends I had before I was interested in Dharma. But on the second retreat, I finally recognized this was what had been so painfully absent for so long. And I was really excited, so I went to the teachers and just wanted to thank them for this radical new approach to the practice. And they laughed and they said, well, actually, it's exactly the same retreat as the one you sat three months ago. (laughs) And that was true, that they taught word for word the same retreat. And I totally didn't believe them. So they had to get the book, the transcript of their talks and show me. And with hindsight, that first retreat was like I just didn't have the receptors in my being to take in that what was being offered. So in my case, I had to develop the insight first before I had the awareness to be able to take in the compassion. And from that point, in the second retreat, I became really fascinated by this quality. And I started to develop it as a regular practice. So I just share that in case any of you have similar um, conditioning, similar challenges. In particular, Many people are somewhat comfortable with offering compassion to other people, but there's one area where they find it really difficult. Anyone have a sense of where that might be? It's in in here to oneself. And again, this was true for me for quite a while. It was quite a while before I could offer that same compassion to my own pain as what I was able to offer to others. And I see that in many of the students I work with. Quite often, when somebody brings a difficulty to me and I suggest self-compassion, their first reaction is not always one of enthusiasm, to say the least. In fact, for some people, just the idea of self-compassion can bring up really difficult reactions. 
again because of the conditioning that is so widespread these days of self-criticism, self-aversion, even self-loathing. So we need to have a lot of patience for ourselves and be willing to take it slowly, to gradually move into what for many people is really new and challenging terrain. So a few years ago I read a paper by the psychologist Paul Gilbert, who's done research in the field of self-compassion. And he wrote about the challenges that so many people face when they're trying to develop warmth and kindness towards themselves. So he says, commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. And this often indicates a fear of developing self-compassion. Exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. And some fear that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So I don't know if any of you recognize this, but it's such a deep part of our many of us, our cultural conditioning. And so we need to relate very patiently to that conditioning. And if there is resistance, to meet that resistance itself with kindness, wherever possible. So sometimes when I work with students to explore obstacles to compassion practice, they tell me that they can't find phrases that feel authentic. So I think as many of you know, the traditional way of cultivating these practices is to silently recite phrases that engender that heart quality. So the phrases I use for self, uh, for compassion are, may I be aware of this pain? May I care about this pain? May this pain release? And may I know peace? So that's just one set that I came up with for myself. But sometimes people say they don't, the phrases don't resonate. So in one case where the person is having a really hard time, we just played together and said, okay, well, what phrases do feel authentic and honest for you? And what they came up with sounded something like this. May I be willing, at some point in the future, to have the intention to eventually move in the general direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. So maybe we can recognize there's a little bit of arm's length there. But even doing that much, saying that, the person decided they would say that three times every morning when they first woke up. And even that, it's like little drops of water on limestone. Each individual drop may seem completely insignificant, but at some point the stone dissolves, the crack opens, huge tree can grow there. 
So we can be creative with the phrases that we use, or we don't use, because we don't have to use phrases. For some people, just finding the energetic resonance of compassion as a more embodied feeling and abiding there works better for them. We're just momentarily placing a hand on the heart, offering a moment of relief. So often when we first begin to develop compassion, we come into direct contact with all the obstacles to it. But if we can approach those obstacles in the right way, those same obstacles can become vehicles that help to develop compassion. So there's a training slogan in all of this that I share often because I found it really useful in my own practice. When I first heard it, I think it was from Eugene Cash. I'm not sure where he got it. But the slogan is, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And for me, that statement was so helpful just to illuminate wherever there's resistance in my practice. So for example, if I can just get rid of this painful emotion, or if I can just get beyond that nasty habit that I loathe about myself, or if I can just get over that terrible relationship breakup, then I'll really be able to practice. But if I remember if it's in the way, it is the way, then maybe grudgingly I have to acknowledge the only way out is through. And so there's a little bit more willingness to try to turn towards those painful situations and meet them with compassion. Just to acknowledge, though, that particularly with compassion, resistance is very common, partly because compassion is closely connected to pain. Remember, it's that willingness to turn towards suffering. So there can be a form of fear there, because fear is a natural response to pain. We are hardwired to avoid experiences that hurt because they could be potentially life-threatening. So it's not surprising we would have a kind of a recoil, a fear response to what's painful or difficult. So in this invitation to turn towards pain, we want to keep in mind that there are two wings to awakening, and the compassion always needs to be supported by wisdom. So wisdom clear seeing recognizes when our fear might be just an old habit, an old reflex, a knee-jerk reaction, and when it might be a wiser fear that's keeping us out of genuine danger. So with practice, we learn to distinguish between what's genuine compassion and what's sometimes called foolish compassion. And foolish compassion can show up as a tendency to wanting to try and help everyone with everything all of the time, which is not only harmful to us, but potentially also harmful to the person we're trying to help, can keep us stuck in patterns of enabling codependence. So the wisdom wing helps us to recognize when to say no and when to say yes. And it may sound paradoxical, but the point of this wisdom is not to make us immune from suffering, it's to make us more vulnerable to it. 
Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life, we won't also be able to open to the 10,000 joys. And again, there's been quite a bit of research around this by people like Brene Brown, who found that people who have the capacity to open to difficulty are also able to access happiness and joy much more easily. So part of this training is in learning to expand the spectrum of life experiences that we can open to, but also to recognize and honor those times when it is appropriate to close the heart and to stay safe. So we can think of this as a process of listening, similar to the relational practice we've been doing in the afternoons, just listening with our full attention, tuning in, attunement to what's actually happening in our own and others' experience with as much kindness and clarity as possible. So as many of you know, later on in the Buddhist tradition, this link between listening and compassion became more explicit in the image of Kuan Yin. So Kuan Yin is the archetypal embodiment of compassion. And she's sometimes known as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body. So that's quite a striking image. And I find this metaphor of listening very powerful because it asks us to settle back and to receive, to respond rather than react. But this receptivity is not passive because out of that deep listening we come to understand the appropriate response. So Kuan Yin is simultaneously attuned to her own inner world and to the outer world and is ready to act. And in my own Brahmavihara practice, there was a significant turning point when I realized that this is not about somehow trying to conjure up or manufacture states of kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity. It's more about listening to what's actually already here, but may just be covered over by the visiting afflictive thoughts and emotions. So the Buddha recognized that these afflictive states are not inherent to us. He named them as visitors, and what's underneath them, when we've cleared out these obscurations, the natural quality of the heart is resting in these four Brahma-Vihara. So when the heart and mind are not obscured by these visiting afflictive thoughts and emotions, there's more space for compassion to naturally flower. And I think of self-compassion in particular as almost a universal solvent that can dissolve all forms of difficult mind state. So the connection with wisdom is that when we're more in touch with our own pain, we're equally able to connect with the pain of others. It becomes clearer 
that we're not the only person in the world who suffers. We start to recognize our shared humanity, that every human being alive has times of challenge, has stress, has distress, has suffering. And so that wisdom, seeing the universality, can help decrease that contraction into just me and my difficulties. And sometimes we might need to consciously remind ourselves of that truth as a way to lighten the self-centeredness that can come so quickly when we collapse into our own misery and get identified or cling to our own difficulties. So just an example from my own life and a warning, it's not very elegant, it's a little bit gross, but I think it illustrates part of the point that I'm making here. So it comes from a time when I was on retreat again at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts and at that time, before the retreat started, I'd been experiencing a chronic health condition. So I was given a course of three very strong antibiotics to deal with it. And I was warned they could cause intense nausea, but generally I have a pretty strong stomach, so I thought, oh, I'll be okay. But from the very first morning of taking them, from the moment I woke up until I went back to bed at night, I just felt like I was about to vomit. And a few times I did vomit. And I tried to keep meditating through all of that, but pretty much after a few days, the whole mind was just me and my stomach. And when am I going to throw up again? And where's the nearest bathroom? Or is there a bucket? It's just me, me, me and my misery. And after a few days of that, it started to feel pretty claustrophobic. And so I tried to offer some self-compassion without much traction. And then I started to think, well, right now in the world, there's probably other people who are feeling really sick. And so I started to think about all the people, say the pregnant women, who are going through morning sickness right now. Then I thought about all the people who are going through chemotherapy and probably feeling really ill. And having lived on a boat, I thought about all the sailors out at sea in storms and maybe having seasickness. And then I thought about all the people with hangovers who were telling themselves, oh, never again. And there was a moment where I just imagined millions of people around the world all retching together in unison. <laughs> and surprisingly, that just opened up some lightness, some happiness, and some sense of shared compassion for this human condition. So that's a fairly lightweight example, but just to get a sense of how opening up to the universality of suffering can help lighten the load. It helped me to understand that pain isn't personal, and I'm not in control, and that allowed more room in the heart and the mind for compassion to grow more genuinely. So as the compassion develops, it tends to open up more space and then all the other skillful qualities can grow too. And the wisdom and compassion become inseparable from each other. 
and our capacity to act for the welfare of others as well as ourselves begins to grow exponentially. So some of you may know how this developed later on in the Buddhist tradition as the Bodhicharya, um, the Bodhisattva tradition of postponing one's own awakening for the benefit of others. And even if this particular vow or tradition doesn't resonate fully for you now, you might get a sense from hearing some of these words that everything we're doing here Everything we're experiencing on this retreat, everything we're cultivating, is not just for our own benefit. It will ripple out in ways we might not fully recognize at this point, but it is an offering and contribution to the welfare of all beings. So just to close with a few lines from Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, which apparently is the favorite text of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, it's a really long book. I'm just going to read you a few phrases that, for me at least, convey that sense of how compassion can flower. So it says, May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So, may our efforts here on this retreat strengthen these two wings of wisdom and compassion so that our lives might be a contribution to the welfare, the happiness, and the freedom of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.